The National Association of State-Controlled Substance Authorities, or NASCA, is providing this podcast as a service to its members, associate members, and others. But it is neither a legal interpretation nor a statement of NASCA policy. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by the NASCA Association. Views expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on this program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Views and opinions expressed by the NASCA podcast host are those of the podcast host and do not necessarily reflect the view of NASCA or any of its officials. If you have any questions about this disclaimer, please contact our office at nasca.org. Welcome to the official podcast of NASCA, the National Association of State-Controlled Substance Authorities. Here you will find conversations, lectures, and thoughts on various topics involving controlled substances. Leading experts sharing their knowledge and ideas on today's medications, dangerous drugs, and substance abuse. NASCA is an association of state government agencies, along with various stakeholders, who oversee controlled substances. Through this association, we work together to make our country, our world, a safer place. Well, I want to thank everybody for tuning in to our, our show today, and we have a, a very exciting program. Uh, we have Sam, Samantha Osterloff. Did I get that right, Sam? You sure did. How about that? Not too bad for the second time, I think. Because I always refer to you as Sam. That's okay, right? I was talking. <laughs> totally. <laughs> I guess you probably should have told me a year or two ago whenever I uh, said that. We've known each other for a couple of years now, and you know, you and I have done some uh, training lectures together, um, which is kind of nice, you know, on pharmaceuticals and diversion illicits. And I, I was just kind of hoping maybe you could tell our audience what your title is, what you do now. I know that you're a college professor. Maybe you could just speak to some of that so we get an idea sure. of who you are. Sure. Uh, so I work for Promises Behavioral Health. Uh, we are a primary mental health and primary substance use disorder organization. We have facilities in Pennsylvania and Florida. We have one in Tennessee, and we have a few options in Texas. So basically what we do um, is we do our best to treat the entire gamut of behavioral health. So on top of the mental health, we can also treat eating disorders, sex addiction, um, any type of process addiction. So my job as a territory outreach manager is to really cover the greater part of South Central Pennsylvania to make sure that individuals are aware of the ability uh, and access to get those services, to generate relationships locally with other providers, to make sure that once our clients complete treatment with us, that they are continuing their care long after the beginning of their recovery, whether it be from substance use disorder or mental health. Uh, In addition to that, I also do trainings for the Pennsylvania Harm Reduction Coalition. Um, So I provide education about different harm reduction modalities. One of my favorite parts of that is partnering with the Pennsylvania Sheriff's Association and being able to provide those trainings to law enforcement officers, different sectors of the criminal justice system, and kind of educating them about the stigma that is related to not just substance use uh, disorder and those with mental health, but also how that demographic may feel towards the criminal justice realm. 
And then I also get to um, teach adjunct work for the sociology department at London Valley College, which has really just been such an awesome experience teaching and, and educating. Big supporter of that, that we should be lifetime learners. And so being able to do that with undergrad students has just been such a gift and to kind of give them a viewpoint of sociology from a personal perspective has just been awesome. And then I also teach at Berks Tech, which is in Berks County, Pennsylvania. And at that their facility, I teach substance abuse and how that relates to the criminal justice system, which again, those are adult learners, which has also been such a cool experience to watch them deal with all of their current life circumstances at being adult learners and still showing up, you know, to further their education has really just been such a fun experience in addition to the work I do with those suffering from substance use disorder and mental health issues. Oh, that's pretty awesome. Tell me a little bit more about the law enforcement. What challenges do you see when you talk to them and teach them about this issue? And has it gotten any better since you started? I think that it's definitely gotten better. There's a lot of programs that are taking place, a lot of trainings, a lot more education. Something I see specifically with my students uh, that are criminal justice majors, is I kind of had this conversation with them early on in their academic career before they're going to be the ones out there, you know, policing the streets and providing uh, supervision or being correctional officers, is I try to explain and instill in them that their personal opinions about substance use disorder or mental health, everybody's entitled to their own opinion. But what becomes an issue in society is when you act out on that opinion when you're on the beat. Uh, initially, when I started doing the trainings, I was very nervous because I'm thinking, here I am going up there in front of all these law enforcement individuals, trying to teach them about not just the history of substance use disorder and how individuals go onto that path, but also talking to them about Narcan, safe syringe programs, and talking to them about different harm reduction methods. The way that I do the training is kind of set up where they get more of an education about substance use disorder, which I've seen be very helpful because once they understand that providing a different outlet for individuals that are committing crime, not inherently because they're bad people, but because their end goal is to get that substance or make the money for of getting the substance, they're much more willing to accept and listen because they know that having that education will benefit them in the long run. And so the first couple minutes are usually a little weird. Uh, but by the end of the trainings, it really has just been, my mind was blown, to be honest, after the first training I did. When you have individuals coming up to you, who you may view as being maybe unforgiving of the things people do when they have a substance use disorder or when they're struggling with mental health. We may have a viewpoint that the criminal justice system is just going to be punitive and not have that, that, that personal caring touch. And to have someone come up to you after the training and express how grateful they are that you provided them the education and just to see how those individuals reach out after the training, even if it's for, hey, I know so-and-so who needs help. Um, watching them open up and be more honest about what they're seeing is really awesome. So I believe it's getting better, but we have to continue to do that as educators to provide them that knowledge. Yeah. And I would agree with you on that. I, you and I are of like mind that way. I, 
I see it the same way. And law enforcement can be a tough sell. You know, they sometimes can be a little rigid in the thinking and getting them to understand this benefits everyone all the way around can sometimes be a little difficult to get them to see that way. But uh, I see them getting better with it, too. They seem to understand. And I have yet to have any of them. And I've trained a good amount at this point. I have yet to have somebody come up and challenge what I'm saying or show any type of negativity towards having to be in the dream. So I would say that's a big step for law enforcement in general. Part of the reason that law enforcement is willing to listen to you, I think, is because of your experience and your background. Um, Why don't you go ahead and, and talk about that a little bit to give people an understanding as to why you know, you have a unique perspective on this. And I think it's so, I think you're so right, because I think that when I'm doing the training and someone initially is sitting in on the training, being able to add my personal touch and a personal story and a face, not the face of somebody that's actively using, but a face of somebody in recovery. And as a result of my recovery and the things I've been able to gain and and the integrity and a good reputation I've been able to build and having the education and all that, they're more, I think they're more apt to listen. So with that being said, to our audience, my name is Samantha and I'm a person in long-term recovery. And what that means to me is that I haven't used a drink or a drug since December 21st of 2011. And when I say the word had to use a drink or a drug, I would say that it should be in capital letters to really emphasize that it wasn't a choice for me at the end. I had lost that power of choice, we call it in recovery, years before I stopped using and have entered long-term sustained recovery. It wasn't a question as to whether or not I was going to use when I woke up the next day, if I woke up the next day. It was, what did I have to do to get the next one? Because I have to. And for me, I mean, I come from a two-parent household. So I come from a two-parent, two-full-time working family household. I grew up in a a very small town with little to no, I'm not going to say there was no crime, but little to no, there weren't intense amounts of crime. I was in a safe environment in the suburbs, in a beautiful home. Uh, and, And as a child, I was given everything I could have ever needed. Not always everything I've always wanted because one of the byproducts of of my disease of addiction is that I'm very selfish and self-centered to my core. And so growing up, I mean, that's how I was. I was a very selfish, self-centered child. But the thing I think that's most important to point out is that we have this viewpoint in our society today that individuals that suffer from a substance use disorder come from these awful broken homes. You know, they, they, they grow up, pover- they're poverty stricken. They grow up and now they just become drug addicts. And that's just not really always the case. And a large amount of what, we're, what I'm seeing today is individuals that come from great homes, that there can't be a stigma associated with the way somebody grows up being a precursor to them inherently having a substance use disorder. Now, of course, I do, I am the adult daughter of an alcoholic. So I did, I do have alcoholism and addiction within my family system, but I didn't grow up in a abusive home. I mean, I had these two great parents who did the best they could with what they had. 
I certainly manipulated my way through a lot of circumstances to make sure that I could always do what I want with no no repercussions, no constrict boundaries on what I was doing. And I would go through my adolescence seemingly normal, the exception of I had this innate feeling inside of me where I had to have certain things to make me feel better. And so early on, it was very, very simple stuff. You know, T.Y. Beanie Babies. It was pogs. It was, you know, the expensive clothing or I had to have what this kid had. And it wasn't this normal rivalry between different kids for me inside. And really, it's what it's about is those feelings of inadequacy. I never felt loved enough. I never felt taken care of enough, despite the reality of what really was going on in my life. And after the innocence of the pogs and, you know, the TYB babies, my story is like many of those people that that I meet uh, today in recovery, that I started experimenting with marijuana. And then I started experimenting with alcohol. And then I'm experimenting with any substance I can get my hand on. But the difference between me and some of my peers is that the way I consumed these substances was far different. That most people that, you know, real simple stuff. Like I was, I went out with some girlfriends. We were maybe about 14 or 15. We drank all night. I vomited all over myself. I was very hungover the next day. And I remember this experience where one of my girlfriends said, oh man, that was so bad. It tasted bad. I felt bad. I'm never doing that again. And in my mind, I'm like, that's weird. I felt great. And I thought it was awesome because for me, when I consume a substance, it shuts down my mind and it, it makes my mind stop running and it makes me feel whole and validated inside. And I, and I can't express enough that it's about the feelings uh, that happen inside of you internally. And I would go through high school, you know, experimenting with drugs and alcohol. And, and the thing that I was very good at was on the outside. If you saw me, if you came in contact with me, you would never believe that I was becoming addicted to drugs and alcohol because I was a varsity cheerleader, because I got great grades, because I was on the honor roll, because I had friends, because I was able to keep relationships. And so from the outside looking in, everything seems okay. And that's exactly what someone like me wants because then I can continue to use drugs and alcohol with, with little to no consequence. And it would continue like that for me. And, and really, for me, it took off in college, the rise of the prescription drug epidemic. I was right before the big rise of it. And there was this overabundance of these prescription, strong prescription pain medications. And, and I did Oxycontin for the first time on Halloween night of my freshman year of college. And for me, it was I, at the time, I can say I probably had the power of choice that I knew that if I did this drug, I, I wasn't stupid. I was educated. I knew it was an opiate. I knew it was addictive. I knew that some other opiates I tried that were a little less potent made me feel good. I like the way this is making everyone around me look. They look like they're feeling good. And from the second I did that drug for the next 10 years, I would spend every day and every minute and every hour of my life consumed with how I'm going to get the next one. And for a long time, 
I was able to maintain and keep things again on the outside looking okay. I'm at a college. I'm getting good grades. I'm not getting in trouble at school. And and still on the outside, everything looks okay. And I can remember that things were starting to happen around me with people that I cared about that were on the same path that I was. You know, looking back now, if I take a look at the people that I was close with that were like my brothers, that were people who helped protect me over the years, that one of them is dead as a result of suicide, which I firmly believe was a direct result of their feelings of despair and loneliness related to the disease of addiction. Uh, One died uh, as a result of an opiate overdose and another died as a result of alcohol withdrawal that his organs basically shut down. And there is me and one other person left alive and living a good quality of life from that group. But I started started to see the way it was affecting people and uh, it didn't stop me. And I continued to use, and eventually, you know, what happens, and I think, you know, one of my students said to me, we were talking about Narcan and overdosing, and and I put up a YouTube clip, and he said, well, I don't understand, like, she just decided to shoot heroin and overdose, and I said, I had chuckle, I chuckled, but on mute, and I said, well, no, the disease progressed, and that's something about this disease, that it's, it's progressive, it's chronic and it's fatal. And so I didn't wake up one day and decide I'm going to shoot, I'm going to use a needle and I'm going to become an IV heroin user. My disease progressed and it progressed from swallowing that pill to sniffing that pill to eventually putting that, breaking that pill down, putting in a needle and putting it in my arm. And then eventually when things got too expensive, you know, it's a, it's a story we hear with a lot of people that are my age um, then you break it down and you you end up using heroin. And that's what happened for me. And about two years of being an IV drug user, I got really sick. A very long, drawn-out story short is that I ended up in the hospital and I ended up on life support. And I was on life support for about seven days. And what they told my parents uh, after they put me on the ventilator is that I had endocarditis which is a soft tissue infection, typically happening as a result of unclean um, IV drug use, unsafe practices of using, uh, that I had gotten an infection from using a dirty needle and that that infection went to my heart. It blew my tricuspid valves in my heart. And so I was in 50% heart failure, that I had a blood clot in my lung, that I had pneumonia and that I was septic and that I had a 10% chance to live. And what I think is most important to get across and what resonates a lot with uh, working with law enforcement, working with young students, working with people trying to enter recovery. And I do a lot of work with families. It's probably one of my favorite pieces uh, because families are such a big part of recovery, which you'll hear in my story is such a huge part for me is, is, is family intervention and family education, is that my parents had a firm belief at that time that because I would, that I would be afraid of dying and that would keep me from continuing to use. And that's really what they thought. And, and the harsh reality of addiction is that the love of your family, the fear of disappointing your family, the fear of death, none of that is strong enough to battle against someone's addiction. 
And I would end up making a recovery. I spent about three months in the hospital. I had to learn how to walk again. I got out of the hospital. I had a pick line and I'm, I'm 22 years old. I'm 22 years old. I have a pick line. And, and I can tell you that the delusion of addiction is so strong that I really at that time didn't think there was anything wrong with my life. And I immediately, you know, go home and start using again. And I'm back to the same old story. And I'm being prescribed this medication that I want to abuse. And, and I, at the age of 22, I had open heart surgery to a, a mechanical valve repair. My tricuspid valves in my heart. And I had this moment where I was scared. And I told myself, I'm never going to use again. And the fear, that, that moment of having that fear was pretty quickly gone. And I would continue to use, go in and out of treatment, go in and out of outpatient programs, continuously trying to manipulate my parents to make them believe that I was only using on the weekends. Everything's fine. I go back to school. I'm an intern at a jail and I'm using in the bathroom at booking. I mean, if that isn't insanity, I don't know what is. I'm living in this home. I have no cable. I have no food. And again, the delusion's so heavy that I don't think there's anything wrong with it. And I end up getting pregnant. And again, when people that are not educated about the disease of addiction hear that, they think, oh, well, Samantha's going to get sober now because she's pregnant. So that's going to fix her. And again, I think that's what a lot of people that loved me really just wanted to believe that now I was pregnant and I was going to stay sober. And, and again, that's just not what happened. And I abused a maintenance program while I was pregnant. I was on a maintenance program that would fill the, the receptors in my brain to keep me from using opiates and to curve cravings. And I abused that program and I used while I'm pregnant and I put myself in these awful positions. And if you would meet me today, you may not believe that that was ever the way I lived my life. But that was my disease. And that was my disease thriving. So I have my daughter and she was born without any issues wrong with her whatsoever. And I got out of the hospital from having her and I would continue to use for another three months, putting her in dangerous situations, putting myself in dangerous situations that I didn't belong in and just back at it, doing whatever I can do to get in the next one. And when you're in recovery, we talk about these things that, you know, when when I was younger, experimenting with marijuana and alcohol. I never, ever imagined ever that I would sniff a drug, let alone pawn my mother's jewelry, let alone put a needle in my arm, let alone drop out of college. Like those are just things I never thought I would do. And at the end of my road, I had done all of them. And my family had caught me. My mother had caught me using after I had my daughter and I begged her not to tell my father. I said, please just don't tell dad. I'm just using on the weekends. It's okay. Everything's okay. And what I didn't find out until much later on is that my mom did tell my dad and they started to get some help. And they started going to see a therapist and they started reaching out to support groups to help kind of navigate. And, and my father says to this day, Samantha, there's no book that you can give to a family member or a loved one and say, okay, well, let me check mark what my child's doing. And then if I just turn to page six, it's going to tell me the exact thing to do, that there isn't one of those. And you just, again, the same way, like I have, ch I have children now, obviously, and I raise them and I do the best I can. 
And that's what you do when someone that you love is using. You just do the best you can with the resources you have. And on December 20th of 2011, I overdosed on my parents' couch in front of my daughter. She was in a little bouncy swing. And I woke up to a paramedic about to Narcan me, my mother crying, and a police officer who said, you know, at the time I had already been on probation. And that police officer really, between him and my him and my mother, I have to say that they were the begin of, beginning of my recovery and what I refer to as my ripple effect. That, that that officer said, Merry Christmas, you can go to treatment and not jail tonight. And it's why I so strongly have such a passion to educate in the criminal justice field because this police officer didn't have to do that. Before we continue our discussion, I want to take a quick break to inform our listeners about NASCA. The National Association of State-Controlled Substance Authorities is a nonprofit that consists of regular members and associate members. Regular members are from various state governmental agencies who have some authority over controlled substances. Agencies like State-Controlled Substance Authorities, Board of Pharmacies, Health Departments, state attorneys general, or PDMP administrators. Associate members are individuals and businesses like pharmaceutical manufacturers, distributors, retail pharmacies, tech and data companies, and others. Their sponsorship provides funding that keeps NASCA operating and allows us to provide educational opportunities like webinars, podcasts, and the annual training conference. NASCA has an executive committee that leads the association. The executive committee is elected by the regular membership and only regular members are eligible to serve on the executive committee. In addition to the executive committee, we also have other committees where both regular and associate members work together. You can learn more about NASCA, its committees and educational opportunities by visiting our website at nasca.org. If you would like to know how to join NASCA or become a sponsor, please visit our website, nascsa.org. That's nascsa.org. When we took our break and now coming off, you were just talking about how there was an officer that really was the catalyst to getting you into recovery. That night that I overdosed, you know, we talk all through my criminal justice degree. That's my degrees are in, we talk about this ability for law enforcement to use discretion. And if I ever could be grateful for that word, it was on that night because that police officer who said, I'll never forget it. He said, Merry Christmas. You can go to treatment, not jail. And looking back at the time, I was angry with him. I didn't think that was a great idea for me to go to treatment, but he was the catalyst that had has started me on my journey in long-term recovery, because he didn't have to do that. And when we, when I think back on my, my recovery journey, if, if he would have put me in jail, if I would have had to wait a week to go to treatment, if I would have had to wait another couple of days to go through the whole process to go to treatment, I think, where would my story be? Because what if I wasn't in treatment at that time to meet this person, to get this message, to get this story, to get this resource. And it's a reason why I'm so passionate about educating law enforcement because 
he was the beginning. Now, the next step was my mother, because I said, I'm going to go to outpatient. It's fine. And she said, no, you're not, because she had gotten some education about, you know, boundaries with someone that's actively using and supporting recovery and not sustained use. And so that police officer was the beginning. And for me, one of my greatest gifts in recovery, there are just so many, but one of them was calling that police officer and thanking him for saving my life and hearing his reaction to that. He was like, you're what? I said, I'm, I'm just calling to thank you for arresting me and, and allowing me to go to treatment, not jail. He was like, well, this is a really weird call to get. I don't get these often. <laughs> and that was a couple months out of treatment that I called him. But years later, further in my recovery journey, I, I, I went in and I went to the police station and I dropped off a card. And the best way for me to wrap up my wrap up how I've entered recovery and what I've been able to do in recovery is through the card I wrote him. And so it was about about two years ago and I had just finished graduate school. I have a degree in criminal justice with an emphasis in behavior management. And I had just graduated with honors and I had just gotten to walk across that stage. And I I got a promotion and I started being able to go into the field I'm in now uh, for my full-time job, which is marketing. And I went in and I took this card and I spent a long time thinking about what am I going to say in this card? How am I going to explain to this man how many lives he has changed, not just my own, with saying you can go to treatment and not jail? And so I sat down and I wrote this card. And what I said to him was, I just wanted to let you know, you arrested me on this date. You may remember me calling shortly after that date to thank you, but I want to let you know what you gave me and what you helped me to get over the past years. And in the card, I explained to him that I got a bachelor's degree and I graduated with honors. I explained to him that I got full custody of my daughter back. I explained to him that because of him, and because of what the decision that he made on that night to give me a chance for treatment is that I'm married in a healthy relationship, that my husband adopted my daughter, that I've been able to provide her with a full, healthy, non-addictive household, that I have been able to buy my first home, that I've been able to help and work in the treatment field for almost my entirety of my recovery, that I have been part, a small part of so many people's recovery journeys. And that because of him allowing, allowing that beautiful miracle to take place, that he has had a ripple effect that has probably touched thousands of people over the years. That one person being able to hear my message, one person being able to hear that you can recover that you can get degrees, that you can get respectable jobs, that you can end up being on the complete opposite side with a graduate degree and a blazer on in front of a room full of 50 law enforcement professionals and have them actually listen to you, regardless of the fact that almost a decade ago, you were putting a needle in your arm. And I explained all that to him and I left him my, e my, my business card with my email on it. 
And it was, I'm telling you, there was nothing like it getting an email back from him. And he thanked me up and down. He said, I am so grateful that you left me this card. He said, because oftentimes what happens to law enforcement, police officers specifically, is we arrest people and we come into these horrible circumstances. You know, we come into this house with a crying mother and a newborn baby with somebody sitting there so delusional, not willing to admit they have a disease. And then we leave and we don't get to hear the miracle. And when we don't get to hear the miracle and we continue to hear the stories of sadness and despair, we get tired. And so he reminded me of how grateful he was that I allowed him to know about my journey. And that really is what my recovery has been for me, being able to sustain almost eight and a half years clean and realizing, you know, sometimes I want to think that I don't have any effect positively on the world. And I have to remind myself that as a result of my recovery, as a result of the hard work, as a result of the love and support from that I've gained back from my family, that I've been able to touch so many lives and the ripple effect continues and that we cannot continue. For me, I think when we're quiet, we die. When I don't share honestly and openly about not just the joys of my recovery, but where I came from, you know, before this journey started, that I'm doing a disservice um, to those around me and to my society and my community. Um, And that's really, you know, what I try to live today is I try to just wake up. I stay clean one day at a time. I do the next right thing. And I try, even if it's something simple, to share a message of hope and a promise of freedom from addiction. And, you know, when I'm done sharing my story, a lot of times what I will tell people is that really, for me, it's summed up in a C.S. Lewis quote that day by day, nothing changes. But when I look back, everything is different. So thanks for letting me share. Oh, thank you. And you are absolutely right about, you know, your sharing to law enforcement and training and teaching is really important not just to the new guys coming on, because they need to hear it too. They need to understand that this is so different. But for those of us that have been doing this for a long time, what that officer said to you was so true. You you go through so many doors in narcotics work and patrol work, and you see so so much devastation, and then you just don't know what to do about it. And you know that you have to make arrests. You know you have to enforce laws. And we want people to be safe. And you know the whole reason we get into this at least for most, you know, the way you should get into it, I think, is because you want to help people. And when we don't see that we've actually done that, that becomes very disheartening and hard. And like he said, he's right, you get tired. Just a couple follow-up questions, because I'm curious. How were you able to conceal it from mom and dad? Was it part of just mom and dad not willing to see it? How did, you know, or did they just miss signs because they just couldn't believe it? Or how skilled were you at you know, it really hiding it. Now, right after I got clear, right after I entered recovery, that is really when, in the state of Pennsylvania specifically, is really when everything was on blast with the opiate epidemic. You could turn on a TV and and there was information about opiates and the epidemic and prescription painkillers and make sure there's not in your cabinets and protect your kids and protect your family and, and all this stuff. And th- there wasn't really that. So there wasn't a lot of that 
and this is just my viewpoint as someone that was using, there wasn't a lot of information about that. It wasn't put out how it is now. It wasn't, nobody was out there. There were people out there trying to break the stigma. I don't want to say there weren't people out there, but it wasn't as highlighted as it has been in the last few years. And so I think a combination of, of that, it's definitely a strong presence of having, at the time, dating somebody who had access to money and drugs. So if you're a college student and you're away at college and you're only coming home on the weekends and there's not those obvious signs of robbing, cheating, stealing, pawning jewelry, exhibiting signs of withdrawal because you don't have money to get what you need. And I think there was also a strong viewpoint that I believe came over from the early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s of if it's happening in our home, it's okay. It's safer if it's in our home. So if I'm smoking marijuana and I'm drinking for a long time, my my parents and I think a lot of my family members thought that that was all I was doing. And that wasn't that bad. The viewpoint, it wasn't that bad. And I think that you know, at the end of my high school career, my father entered recovery. So it was a very tumultuous time, I think, looking back now for my mother and father. I mean, they were trying to rebuild their lives and their marriage after decades of alcoholism. And so I think that I very much was able to fly under the radar, especially not living in the home. And I think that there was a lack of education on my parents' part. And even though my father had had education about alcoholism and what that is. I think it's very different when you're viewing it as your child. Even for me now, you know, I, I try to compare it to my daughter. So my daughter's eight. And in school, if they try to say she did something wrong, I'm a me. And this is a mild <laughs> example that obviously doesn't involve drugs. But I'll say not my child. Nope. It was the other kid. She wasn't being bad. So I think for a long time for my parents, that was that mindset that maybe this is just a phase. Samantha would never do that. Samantha's afraid to get a flu shot. She would never put a needle in her arm. And so I think a combination of all those things together it is really what allowed me to continue to manipulate the way I was. Just to kind of expand on that a little bit and I think we do that in a general sense with whatever group we're closest to. And what I mean is when I teach trainings for healthcare facilities, one of the things that I talk about is colleague bias. You know, a doctor who is treating another doctor or treating another nurse or treating a pharmacist, that's who their patient is. I don't think that they are looking for the signs that would be obvious to somebody else because it's a colleague and they know that this person works with pharmaceuticals and that they're, they know the body. And I just don't see, they, I don't think they see them that way. Parents are the same way. I think they just see their child and just cannot recognize it until it gets just to the point where it's so bad, you're sort of forced to recognize it. Would you say that that's accurate? I would say that's very accurate because even now working with parents who, who reach out and, you know, we're talking about trying to get their child into treatment and they're not children. I mean, they're over 18, but that's your baby no matter what. And we're talking about it and you can hear the fear in their voice, but then you can also hear the justification. And I just feel so strongly like, I, you know, I've had uh, 
some cousins, a cousin that uh, was struggling with substance use disorder and mental health. And even in the beginning with that, it was hard for me because I was like, she's going to go to treatment. She's going to do great. She's going to be totally fine. Everything's fine. And, and it was like the blinders were on because you so you love and care about somebody so much and you just want them to be well. And you want to tell yourself whatever you can. And thank God she's entered recovery and is entering you know, longer term recovery. But I think there's definitely a blinder on us. Because if you would say something about my best friend or her like being rude to you or something simple like that, I would say, you must have misunderstood. Because <laughs> she would never do that. And it's the same concept. Well, let me ask you another follow-up question too. So how prevalent is poly drug use? And you mentioned, uh, you know, a couple of different drugs for yourself, but I, I don't really see it as poly drug use so much as, you know, when I think of poly drug use, I'm thinking pills, uh, marijuana, cocaine, I mean, stimulants, depressants, doesn't matter. Um, and I think that now, at least from what I'm seeing in law enforcement, is that seems to be a lot more prevalent than it was, you know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. I, I think that, from what I see is that, for example, if someone's using heroin and maybe they don't they didn't buy as much heroin or couldn't afford as much heroin as they're gonna as they wanted to, that then maybe they'll buy some Xanax or uh, a a benzo and they'll they'll get another depressant to increase the effects that the heroin's gonna have. What they really want is the heroin. But if they got to do something else with it, adding a second drug to increase the effect, I mean, that's how I was. Now, I want to call my, have called myself uh, a poly substance abuse user. I would say that if I couldn't get what I wanted, then I would get A, B, and C. Or if I needed A, B, and C to make D work better, I would use that. But there are some individuals out there who they are addicted to a stimulant and a depressant. And they'll do the stimulant all day and the depressant at night to come down. But I don't know that there's a huge set of people, um, just from what I see, and what, what I'm seeing right now in the drug and alcohol field is, you know, the same thing I've been seeing the last couple of years, um, 19 to 27, 28, 29, 30, we call it failure to launch in the field, individuals coming into treatment for opiate addiction. I mean, that's what I'm seeing. We're definitely, I'm definitely seeing an increase in individuals who are abusing uh, meth or cocaine that maybe started with heroin, went to treatment, got off heroin and have moved on to something else, uh, but definitely a lot of opiate use. And then that increase we're seeing, which I think we're going to continue to see increasing as the opiate epidemic turns into the substance use epidemic that, that we're seeing. I've been calling it that for a little while now because I, yeah. I don't really think of it as an opioid epidemic anymore. I think the time has flown by and most people probably don't realize that it was long before this, but the CDC didn't declare it that until 2010. Well, that mm -hmm. was 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, so we've been dealing with this for longer than that because I've been in narcotics for 24 years and I can tell you that, uh, it was a lot longer than that than 2010. The government just finally got off their tuchus and, and said, we've got a real problem here and we got to deal with it in a different way. But the other thing, and, and, you know, I've been calling the opioid epidemic, the forgotten epidemic because <laughs> everything's about the, the pandemic. But one of the things that I wanted to ask you, especially in recovery yourself, but also just for folks that you're dealing with, how hard is this? Because I, I had also talked to a Dr. Webster about this. How hard is it in dealing with recovery? Because you guys sort of need to be together. You know, it's a it's mm -hmm. a, a bonding issue and helping each other out. How difficult is that to do it online? 
there's definitely some perks about it being online. So, you know, you don't have to get out of your jams. You don't have to leave your house to go to a meeting. And so that's cool. But there's that, and I'm not going to say physical touch, but there's that personal touch of being in a room and sharing space with somebody and physically being there with them. Now, once this all happened and churches started shutting down and meeting places started saying, you know, we can't have this many people in here. The recovery community was very quick and very on top of it, getting Zoom meetings set up, making sure that people had access to that. But it definitely makes it tough. Now, for me, somebody who's in long-term recovery, who's had a couple of years to make relationships and build that, you know, personal relationship that I that I've built. For me, I don't worry so much about myself, but what I worry about is the person getting out of treatment. Because now we're in, they have to stay isolated. They have to get on these Zoom calls. And there's not that fellowship, that aura of like sharing that space with somebody. Um, so I think that is definitely difficult. I think when it comes to people accessing treatment, you know, people are very scared. They don't want to catch the virus. So from what I'm seeing in, in, in our sector here with getting into treatment is there's less individuals that are going into the hospital for substance use or mental health related issues. So then that's one point of access to treatment that's decreasing. Individuals aren't seeing their therapists, most individuals, some therapists are still doing uh, sessions because it's two people, you're six feet apart. But if you're on telehealth or you're seeking outpatient services on telehealth, it's much easier to, to not tell the truth, not show your body language, and not show that you may be struggling when you're in front of a, a video call. So that's another limited outlet to treatment. I think that we're seeing things start to pick up now. We're seeing more people reach out for help. I think my fear of this pandemic is we're going to move into a mental health crisis, um, is that individuals are, they're home with themselves. There's a lot of additional stressors. You're working from home. You got kids screaming. All of a sudden, you're a full-time teacher uh, if you got school-aged kids. And I think it's going to take a toll. And I think that's what we're going to see keep happening. So another reason why I think it's important to just, you know, be vocal, be honest, so that people know that there's resources out there that it's okay. This is a difficult time for everybody, but certainly difficult for people who, uh, even if you're, even if you enjoy being home and isolating, there's only so much isolating you can do <laughs> before you're like, okay, maybe it'd be nice to go see somebody or or be in a group of people. So I think that that's definitely been uh, difficult, especially for people coming out of treatment. Yeah. And the stressors just associated with that, just from someone who's not suffering from a substance use disorder is enormous, let alone if you have that. So having all those sort of things and being, you know, not being able to be social, not being able to have that fellowship so that you can get on you know, the road to recovery, make it a little bit easier, that much harder. And so I, I think that's, that's something that we, and you're right. I think it's going to be a mental health crisis. We, I think we've already had that anyway. I think we're there anyway. Uh, we were just starting to talk about it a lot more about trauma and trauma informed yes. care and those sort of things. We were just starting to really, you know, over the last two years, at least for me, starting to get an understanding about it 
more education about it for myself and then also talking about it more with training law enforcement. And then now we have this, and I think it's just going to probably make things uh, a lot more challenging for us in the future. Well, Sam, I, I want to say thank you very much again for all your hard work, um, everything that you're doing out there. Keep up good work because we certainly need you in law enforcement. We need you to put that message out there and so that we know that you know we're making the right decisions too. Um, and you're a big part of that. And, and all the people that you touch are grateful for it. And also, thank you so much for coming on this podcast and, and sharing with us today. Of course. I'm your host, Alan McGill. On behalf of the executive board of NASCA and our education committee, I want to thank you for joining us. The music for this podcast was provided by Joseph McDade. And if you like Joe's music, please visit josephmcdade.com. You can support Joe on Patreon. You can also find all of our episodes at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever podcasts can be found. I also want to thank our platinum, gold, and silver sponsors. Without them, we could not provide educational opportunities such as this podcast. NASCA also invites you to join us at our annual training conference where we educate through networking, exchange of ideas, and by experiencing some of the best speakers on current topics and trends involving controlled substances. To learn more about NASCA, our conferences and educational programs, visit our website, nascsa.org. That's nasca.org. I hope you learned something and moved forward. Please join us again on our next podcast.